Hello and welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's episode 91. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and in a blink of an eye, I'm always, as usual, joined by the man himself, Mr. Mark Pearson Freeland. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Mike. Don't you worry, listeners. If you blink, we're not going to disappear. We are here for the long haul. Episode 91. What an exciting show we've got coming up. And Mark, um, this is going to be the next instalment of uh, Mr. Gladwell. Uh, And last week we dove into the world of the tipping point, which was all about how ideas spread, how they catch on. Um, Where are we going today? We are going to internalize a little bit. We are turning Mm. to Michael Gladwell's book, Blink, and we are revolutionizing ourselves and thinking and understanding about the world within us, our subconscious alignments and the way that we make decisions. Well, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's almost like he's written these books perfectly because one is about, you know, the tipping point is about how big ideas go out in the world and Blink is kind of how these ideas come into our personal world. And, uh, both the tipping point and blink were absolutely huge. I mean, outliers, which we are going to do in this series, was even bigger. But I mean, this man has got an amazing hit list of really bestsellers. It's it's quite incredible that he can use this uh, new lens at looking how we behave and how we think and how they relate in this new world, uh, this sort of knowledge economy world, this digital world. Um, he really is onto something with Blink though, isn't he? Yeah, he is. And I, I like the, the two episodes as a pair because you're right. Tipping point is how we kind of externalize ourselves, how we, how we look out into the world. But then Blink is, okay, well, how are you going to receive someone else? Or how are you mm. going to internalize or listen to others? And I like this as a, as a pair as a two-hander here, because you do have the inside and the out. And you're right. It's kind of like Gladwell's thought, all right, well, I've given all these tips and I've delved into these experiments in tipping point. But what happens for those people on the other side of the coin? Where do they learn? Where Mm. do they think from? And this element and this uh, behavior that Gladwell has that transcends all his books is just fascinating. He's such a great thinker and He's just, he's so able to break things down in a way that is understandable. You can get it. It's, it's a little bit like Taleb's technique of bringing in lots and lots of uh, examples and analogy. Mm-hmm. But I'd say Gladwell, maybe it, it's, it's actually sometimes it's, it's, I find it's a little bit easier uh, to follow his experiments, for me at least. Yeah. I think he's up there with Adam Grant and Simon Sinek. He, he's really... I mean, he's almost living the tipping point in making his ideas very contagious, relatable, understandable, shareable. And I think in 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 this episode, what I what I want to kind of set up for for you and the listeners, Mike, is I think this is a chance for us to be more aware about how we actually think, and how we think is such a powerful tool because we have total control how, over how we think, particularly on how we want to perceive things around us. So I think if we are more aware of how we think, we can make better decisions. And if we make better decisions, I think we can realize our hopes and our dreams that much quicker and that much better. So I think if you're looking to think clearer, be aware of how you make important decisions, well, we have got a great show in front for you. We're going to hear a lot from from Gladwell. We're going to have some really pragmatic tips. We've got some amazing case studies where this all comes alive. Mark, I think we need to jump on in. Where shall we start the adventure? I think it would only be right. We ended last week hearing from Gladwell talking about the tipping point. Let's begin this week by hearing Malcolm Gladwell again telling us and introducing his book, Blink and why we should consider and make judgments in the blink of an eye. My book is a book about snap judgments, about the kind of thinking we do like this. And when you take a chair out to focus groups, you're getting people to make a judgment. Like, they look at it, do you like it, right? 
Now, my question that I ask in this book is how seriously do we take that judgment? What does it mean? We understand if someone took the chair home and lived with it for a year and sat it in every day and gave us a judgment. We understand that kind of judgment. Right? But we're not doing that. We're having a focus group. We have the chair in the center of the room, and we say, what do you think? And people say, blah, 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 blah. Well, what does that mean? Right? What, we, what do we know about the accuracy, the, the strength, the, the whatever of that particular judgment? And so the book is an attempt to come up with some kind of principles for understanding when that judgment is trustworthy and when it's not. Ooh, you know, it's so funny when I listen to that. I always think about these moments when people uh, ask me a question during uh, my work and they say, well, what do you think about this? And you've been off thinking about something else and you are presented with this sort of oof, snap judgment moment where um, you haven't had all this time and consideration. And it's funny how you you can, in fact, give an answer. And I think uh, what Gladwell does very well uh, in his book and what we're going to show in these clips is how we get to that and how we can get to that fast response um, in a positive way and how we can set ourselves up uh, to make the best snap judgments. But also he's going to tell us some great stories on how we can avoid the downside of the very same Thing. You know, the, the funny thing is, Mark, you know, we often talk about frameworks on how to think and solve problems. And there's a lot of different models on how we might see the world, macro, micro, um, through all sorts of social, political, and economic lenses, all sorts of how to think lenses, first principles, and all of this. But what we're really going to get to is the very essence of who we are, those snap subconscious judgments. And do you know the funny thing is, Mark, I've not thought a lot about how I make these snap judgments. What about you? No, you know what? I actually am not, uh, well, I'm sure my family would disagree with this. I was about to say I'm not much of a snap judgment type of guy, <laughs> but actually maybe I am. Maybe my behavior is born out of snap judgments and reacting immediately to things. But actually, I like to think that if I'm making a decision, I will try to have elements of the big picture. I'll try and consider, okay, well, what's leading me to this decision-making process? But actually, mm. what I found with, with Gladwell's Blink is that's not always the most beneficial use of time because actually you can, and we'll go into this more in the show, you can actually get to that point of making that decision without having to spend lots and lots of time digging into all of the the data, uh, not necessarily the data, say, but the decision-making elements around me. And that actually mm. I found a little bit surprising, to be honest. Yeah, it's because I think um, it's easy to assume that not until you've done some very rigorous process that you might know the answer, but there is ways to get this signal through the noise at a very early stage. And this is the, the reveal in the work of Gladwell. So I'm actually going to, I'm going to play this next clip because he talks about this concept of thin slicing um, and how we can rapidly uh, start to form ideas. So let's have a listen to Malcolm Gladwell. My new book, Blink, is, um, it's, uh, it's about rapid cognition. And um, by that, I mean the kind of thinking that takes place uh, in uh, the blink of an eye, as opposed to the kind of thinking that we do consciously and deliberately um, over some period of time. And I use the word thinking because I think that what goes on in that, the kind of decisions we make in the blink of an eye um, represent thinking. It's rational, it's just that it's um, operating below the level of awareness and operating by slightly different rules than the other kind of thinking which we're very familiar with. And the book is a call to kind of understand and appreciate um, the enormous power, both for good and ill, of that kind of thinking. There you go. So very similar. That's He's now helping me contextualize it. There's room <laughs> for both. <laughs> That's the mm. good news. And actually, again, it's interesting to, to dig into this in the book. Seeing the benefits of both sides, whether you're perhaps a slightly uh, longer decision maker versus somebody who is able to do racket, rapid cognition and make those decisions in the blink of an eye, that snap decision making, there's values of both. 
And it's interesting when you sort of turn the, the camera on yourself and think, okay, well, what have I been doing in my past? Which one, which camp mm. do I kind of naturally fall into right now in order to kind of grow, to learn from Gladwell and mm. maybe make an improvement? Mm. Mm. He's really making a case for um, both the power of this idea of thin slicing, of knowing that we can make deductions very, very quickly at a subconscious uh, layer. And he, uh, he's kind of challenging us to really think about these two levels of thinking, conscious and subconscious thinking. And um, I think the opportunity here for all of our listeners is this is a great shortcut. If you can use the concepts in Blink, you'll be able to go faster uh, with a good level of confidence about your decisions um, because you can trust in the power of the human subconscious to make really powerful decisions. And, I, I mean, I think that's that's a very exciting concept because um, we live in a world where we make millions of decisions. We are always trying to process the data around us in order to make the best the best decision possible. So, I mean... I think this is uh, pretty damn important stuff. Um, if you if you're dealing with ideas and collaboration um, in your daily work, then this this is essential. Otherwise, if you follow a traditional, almost academic process, uh, you're going to be the sort of the last one um, in the queue because you're going to take forever to get. Uh, the processing done. So I think there's an opportunity for a bit of a shortcut here. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I, I think shortcut um, with that confidence that you're talking about and that Gladwell goes into is where the real benefit of Blink comes through. If I'm able to have confidence in my decision-making and do it in a faster way, that's actually more valuable to my teammates and peers because I'm responding faster and maybe with a better um, level of confidence, that's, that's a real value add. If I spend, you know, tens of minutes or hours deliberating a bit of feedback or a direction or a decision, that causes delays. And actually mm. the value add of me spending that extra time is probably often nil, or maybe it's invisible to the ultimate effect. And having that, as, uh, that awareness, and it's kind of like a, a new discipline to learn, isn't it? This new challenge of providing it in a much faster way, but at the same time, exercising those steps to deliver that ultimate confidence. That's what we're, yeah. we're going to benefit. I, to- I totally agree. And, and I think that where we're going to go on this show together is we're going to look at a couple of really famous case studies um, that Gladwell has built this work out of. So we can really understand this idea of subconscious thinking, how we make these snap judgments. And then we're going to do some insanely practical um, clips around how we can do it, how we can embrace this process. But talking about embracing things, Mark, I want to encourage our fabulous listeners, thousands and thousands of them all around the globe, I think we want them to embrace the act of the App Store review of the podcast review. Mark, do you think they're up for it? I think that all you and I need to do is blink our eyes and we'll open up the App Stores and find all of our listeners have gone on and left just one or two little reviews. Because as we, as we say, we're so excited when we hear from our listeners. We're so excited to see new countries and locations popping up across the globe who are listening to the show. It, it gives us so much joy. Mm. and We're so proud to see all these listeners in, in all these fantastic locations. Mm. And the only way that that gets out there is by you, our listeners, leaving us a review or a rating. So we really, mm. really uh, encourage everybody who's listening to the show and enjoying listening to Mike and Mark chatting away and learning out loud from innovators, just to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcast or any of your podcasting software of choice as it'll help us get the word out there. Yeah. So if you're listening right now and you've got a free hand, um, you know, I really encourage you to go out there and to um, open up your app. I can see here like 
there's literally over 110 ratings and reviews from you, our listeners, and we're super grateful. I think we can push the dial. I think we should go for the big 150. And it's really uh, important because when you do this, uh, we are recommended more in people's feeds. And the reason this matters is that the laws that we're starting to uncover as we learn from innovators are universal. Um, We're learning that resilience. We're learning that embracing discomfort, that to always be learning. There are these universal laws of how to be the very best version of ourselves. And we feel that everybody deserves a chance to listen, to understand these ideas and to come and join the conversation. Let's, let's talk about them. Let's see how we can all learn together. So please leave us a rating or review. But now it's time to take a challenge. In fact, now it's time to take the Pepsi challenge. And um, this was a famous marketing ploy where Pepsi had people blind taste Coke and Pepsi. And it really, it scared Coke. Uh, This was the first time Pepsi really challenged them. And what's interesting is Malcolm Gladwell did a lot of work to understand uh, what they had done and actually some of the caution that we should take with these sorts of tests, these snap judgments. So let's have a listen now to Malcolm Gladwell um, based on his work in the book Blink talking about the Coke and Pepsi challenge. But our preferences, as expressed in a snap judgment, are extraordinarily unstable. That's a very important point because it is the assumption of many people in many aspects of our lives, but let's just talk about market research here. The assumption of a lot of market researchers is that when they measure a preference for something, they're measuring some kind of, of, of inherent position on that issue or product or thing, right? But in fact, that's wrong. In fact, when you measure something in a, by a snap judgment, what you're measuring is unbelievably volatile. Let me give you an example. Um, Coke and Pepsi. Remember the Pepsi challenge? <coughs> like two cups, one's got Coke, one's got Pepsi. You give it to Coke drinkers and you say, take a sip of each. Which one do you prefer? And lo and behold, Coke drinkers always prefer Pepsi, right? That's what caused Coke to do the whole new Coke thing 20 years ago because they were getting killed in this seeming extraordinarily objective measure of what people preferred. There's all this internal correspondence in Coke at the time when they were like, oh my God, maybe we're not the best tasting Coke, right? Maybe American (laughs) American tastes have changed and cola's not what it once used to be. Maybe we've got to be more like Pepsi. After all, we're asking not just five or 10 people, but you know, tens of thousands of people were given the Pepsi challenge. And the result, that's an extraordinary robust statistical margin. And they, it's something like 60 or 65% of Coke drinkers said in the SIP test that they preferred Pepsi. Doesn't that seem to suggest that Pepsi is better tasting than Coke, right? Seems like a very stable way of measuring preferences. No, doesn't suggest that at all. Because the whole test is, in fact, a kind of fraud. It's a SIP test. When you're sipping any drink, you will always prefer the sweeter one, right? If, on the other hand, you drink the whole can, you, the, sweet, the sweetness will start to become cloying and your preference will shift back to the thing that's not so sweet. Pepsi is sweeter than Coke. Pepsi will always win a sip test. If you make people drink the whole can, they'll prefer Coke, right? Well, which of those two scenarios is more like the real world? Well, unless people are buying cola, taking one sip and throwing it out, <laughs> you're actually far more interested in what they think after tasting the whole can. Oh, you're right. There is an element of, of uh, Adam Grant coming through here a little bit where he's taking an experiment. In this case, mm. Gladwell's digging into the Coke v. Pepsi challenge, which is a globally uh, well-known uh, challenge, I'd say. You know, everybody kind of heard of it. A lot of us probably experienced the other Cokes that they tried to make. And what Gladwell's doing a great job here of is looking at it with another lens. And what I get from this example, this experiment, this new way of looking at that challenge that, that, they, uh, that they did back then, is living with a decision is, is not often the same. You don't necessarily get the same outcome as you do making that snap decision. So, Mm. you know, if I was to turn the lens on myself for a second and I make a decision, it could be exactly the same as as, as this uh, Coke versus Pepsi scenario. I've chosen the sweeter option. 
I've chosen the uh, the answer to a problem. Maybe it's a design-related one. Maybe it's a product-related one. Maybe it's a challenge for a client. And I've possibly chosen one that's maybe a little bit easier. Maybe I've chosen the one that I think is what people want to hear. And that's a little bit short-sighted because I haven't drunk the whole can. <laughs> I haven't uh, experienced the whole answer yet. And something that I like to do, Mike, is I like to make a decision in my head and then sleep. Mm -hmm. I'll sleep on it. Oh, yeah. I'll wake up. Oh, yeah. Think, oh, have I made the right decision? There? Okay. Yeah. Or no. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I think there's a big part of that. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about if you're going to work on an idea. For example, I'm working uh, on a piece of work now. It's a big masterclass. And uh, I've been thinking about it for weeks and I'm almost ready now to produce this, this masterclass. And there's a few things that my snap judgment was mm. about some of the content, but giving it time to refine uh, and to brew nicely has been important. I think there's a, there's a, there's another thing here that we can learn from Gladwell is to always question the stimulus. Mm. If there was ever a great example of that, have a look at how much misinformation and hysteria has been around uh, health data the last six months and then uh, uh, people jumping to conclusions when they haven't really evaluated the stimulus. As Gladwell quite rightly points out, the big uh, trick Pepsi played was it's sweet. So when you take a small portion, you prefer it. But, I mean, you're so sugared up if you drink a whole can of that stuff. Um, so you would actually prefer Coke. Um, so making sure that before you react to question the stimulus and to make sure that whatever data is being presented to you, that it was actually captured in the correct way. That is a really essential thing. And that's also why um, you will have heard on, on this podcast many times that I'm not a huge fan of the traditional focus group because you generally get people around a table trying to imagine how they would feel about something that they can explain without looking silly in front of others. Mm. Uh, my preference is uh, to change the stimulus and say, if you want to know how they would evaluate a new consumer appliance or a new business service, give them the, that service, a prototype of that service or that appliance and test it in real life. Um, asking them to imagine what it would be like and how they would feel about it is such a leap of faith that, that that's the wrong stimulus as you'll hear that Gladwell often critiques uh, focus groups with as well. So I think this is like a, a good reminder to make sure before you react to anything that the stimulus is right because Coke freaked out about nothing in the end. Um, they could have responded in a totally different way, but they in fact created a whole new product, which then they can because people went back to Coke when they realized Pepsi was too damn sweet. Um, so this is a great learning in how this is sort of the dark side, if you will, of our snap judgments. And I think that um, not only in work, but I think our media presents us with so much stimulus that when you dig into it, the facts are super, super questionable, you know, the classic one, there is a, there's a new report out. But how many times do we actually check the report? And I think that's what Gladwell is asking us to do. And I think we can all be a little bit more diligent on the data before drawing insights and responses. Don't uh, you, Ma? I, I couldn't agree more. A lot of the projects that we've done in recent history, in fact, it's all going down... Um, data-driven responses by customers. And mm. we, we've got to take that pinch of salt, you're right, when we sit in front of a customer or we imagine, we ask them to imagine something. I think it's so much more valuable when you put something, even if it's a low-fidelity prototype or visual or a simple proposition and ask them to maybe it's rate it, maybe it's provide that point of view based on how they interpret whatever it is that you put in front of them. And... Mm. That's always quite a fun, it's quite a fun process actually, but mm. also equally so much more valuable than 
you know, me asking you, Mike, to imagine a certain scenario. Mm. And we take, and I take that as at face value because I don't know what you're imagining. <laughs> it's harder for me exactly. to, to quantify that. And that, that I think is, is so true to where Gladwell's pushing us here, question that stimulus and, mm. you know, really dig into why the customers or why a brand has made that as a decision. And uh, in this next clip, Gladwell's got a great build on this. So we've talked a little bit about questioning the stimulus, but you can actually be in control of what information comes to you. And we're going to jump from the world of soda and, uh, you know, sugary drinks, and we're going to jump into the world of the orchestra. Um, rather than focusing on individual on differences in individuals, I like to focus on differences in environments. So to give you an example, I have a chapter in the book that talks about um, uh, the classical music world. And for years and years and years, classical um, orchestras were entirely male. And if you asked people in the business, maestros, why they only hired men, they would say, well, men are better musicians than women. They are fundamentally inherently better. And you say, well, why do you think that? And they'd say, well, we have auditions open auditions and women come and they play alongside men and the men always play better. So, you know, what could be a more transparent and objective way of measuring musical ability? And if men are always winning, you know, women only ever win the competition for the harp. And so, you know, clearly there's a problem with women here. Well then, for a variety of reasons in the 80s, they started to put up screens in auditions. So you could only hear, you couldn't see. And immediately, they start to hire women. And now, in the last 25 years, orchestras have gone from being about 5% female to being roughly 50-50, which says that since the imposition of the screen, women had disproportionately won more auditions than men, which would suggest, actually, that if anyone is inherently better musician, it's a woman. But put that aside. What that says is that um, in ways that they did not realize, uh, the evidence of their eyes and their unconscious feelings about women were prejudicing the snap judgment, because an audition is a snap judgment, the snap judgment that kind of maestros were making about people playing music. Right? That they were, they had, their judgment was corrupted by this enormously apparently powerful thing called, you know, sexism. Right? And when we put the screen up, what we did is we took the maestro who was a very bad snap decision maker and we made him a good one again. Right? Now, um, that says to me that people make good snap decisions in environments where some attempt has been made to, um, to uh, uh, clean up sources of contamination. Um, and what's interesting about that story, of course, as well, is that it's a case where we made someone a better decision maker by taking away information. That's another key, very interesting thing, that snap decisions are better when we've gotten rid of sources of contamination and also where we have simplified the kind of decision-making palette. Oh, now we're getting, mm. in, now we're getting into bling. Well, mm. I like this. So uh, if, if, if the previous clip, Coke versus Pepsi, you know, we're sort of questioning the stimulus, questioning the data, this is taking another layer deeper. We're questioning the data as well as the judgment of, uh, in this case, maestros uh, in, the, in the past. And where I think this, this really, you know, ignites me is when considering this kind of blind test, so to speak, um, of the male versus female uh, performers, um, you are, you're taking away information, which for me, if I was considering how to make a decision, I'd want to look at that big picture. I'd want to get all of the data, all of the elements to it in order to make an informed decision. But actually this is where Blink really comes into its own because it's saying, Gladwell's saying, no, no, remove data mm. in order to get rid of that contamination mm. so you can make the right decision with confidence. You're, you're absolutely right. Sort of like this counterintuitive uh, situation. Let your subconscious focus completely and fully on the thing that matters most, which is the sound they produce. And what's quite interesting about this is it's exactly the same as what the TV show The Voice does. It has the judges sit with their backs to the artists so they can focus on, guess what, the voice. And what's, what's tempting, particularly in a work situation, is to get a big, long document, right, with all of the context and all of the data. But I think what this is calling out for is for us to ask ourselves, what is 
important information and what could we remove in order to make it better? And this reminds me of this parallel, Mark, between that the best writing is writing that has been edited and the art of being a good editor is to cut half and then cut another half again, which is a famous rule of editors that actually by reducing the copy, you make the writing better. I think there's a pattern here, don't you? Oh, yeah, I, I really do. And the voice is a perfect, um, you know, pop culture reference to this actually. And it's very, very physical, isn't it? Their backs are literally turned. So mm. if, we, if we think about that from a decision-making perspective, for me, I, I would have to try and turn my back on uh, time. You know, the pressure, the time pressure of having to make a, a decision based on maybe logistics, I guess probably is a contamination in my experience. Mm. Know, that gets in the way of making a uh, decision or uh, providing maybe a bit of feedback that is fully uh, informed by my subconscious and, and my, my belief in what it is. Um, and it's polluted. It's polluted because I'm thinking, ah, oh, but can we do this? Ah, oh, what about mm. um, the timeline? And that's kind of what I should be turning my back on, at least to a certain extent, um, mm -hmm. similar to, you know, those judges in The, the Voice or uh, the, the orchestra maestros looking for a, for a new member. Less is more. So I've got a few practical frameworks. You know, it wouldn't be a good show if I wasn't throwing a framework or two around. Um, so how can we do this? How can we focus on what matters? How can we, you know, effectively turn our backs, reduce the information so that we can focus on what really matters? Um, my the, the best framework I can come up with is what we call the Eisenhower matrix. This is... Um, um, built around four key thoughts. What am I going to do? What am I going to plan? What am I going to delegate? And what am I going to eliminate? And the architecture of this is that you focus upon what is urgent and what is important. And invariably our great challenge in our day-to-day -day is we keep focusing on urgent but we don't ever get round to the important. Oh, wow. And when you draw up this matrix, if something is both urgent and important, that's a do. If it's not important and it's not urgent, you eliminate. So this is called the Eisenhower matrix. Are you feeling all Eisenhower-ish now, Mark? I, I like that a lot. So you, you apply the matrix, the Eisenhower model, yes. to, the, yep. to these moments. And mm -hmm. therefore, it's kind of like almost cracking a, a new code or a, or a new language, perhaps. You look at it in a different way and you think, okay, well, this is the utmost importance. This is, has to be done. has to be done now. Right. I'm going to focus myself on that. That's a great yes, it's Yeah. So, so, so the nuance there is it's when it's both important and urgent. That's a do. Mm -hmm. If it's important but not urgent, you should plan to do it. If it's urgent but it's not very important, then you should delegate it. And if it's neither urgent and neither important, elimination. That is exactly what Gladwell is talking about here. It is. You're right. That's exactly where he's going with this. And Eliminate it. Yeah, eliminate. Declutter. Yep. Yep. So there you go. I mean, this is, this is a, a practical way that you can set yourself up to focus on what is both important and urgent information or important and urgent decisions that you need to make. And that's called the Eisenhower matrix. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's amazingly simple, but powerful tool, tool that you can use to, you know, present your subconscious with more of the good stuff and less of the distraction. <sighs> okay. So, uh, Mark, we are, we are about to go for a rip roaring run through some very, practical ways we can all use this idea of Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. But many of our listeners will be thinking, hey, I want to check in on The Tipping Point or many uh, of the other 90 shows that we've done. My question is, I wonder where they should go to find that information. Mm -hmm. Well, fortunately, they don't need to apply 
the Eisenhower matrix. They don't need to <laughs> consider whether this is important or whether they should delegate this. This is recommended for everyone. You don't need to declutter or remove contamination. Everybody, you can go right now to moonshots.io. You can listen to our latest show. Prior to today's, it was Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, episode 90. You can dig into all previous 90 shows, 90, with some unbelievable innovators in there, such as James Clear, Nicholas Taleb, just to name a couple of recent ones, William H. McRaven, that was a good one. And all the way through to Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Brené Brown, some incredible thinkers. And you can find transcriptions of many of those shows. You can find our show notes. You can even find a little section of mantras to inspire you and get you going in the morning. And you can also sign up for, for our newsletter. So you can be informed as when we've got a new blog post, a new episode that goes live every week. So go and check us out at moonshots.io. And if you're feeling really courageous and inspired, feel free to drop us an email at hello at moonshots.io. We love hearing from listeners and we always welcome recommendations on uh, books, innovators, and new lessons that we can learn out loud with. And on that note, let's get cracking. Let's get into some of the practical uh, advice that has been decoded from uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. And this time we're going to use um, somebody who has kind of broken it down. So uh, this is going to, to be a short, sharp, and punchy section of the show where we get the chance to hear the rules to apply the model, the framework, the behaviors for us to, to think better. So let's kick it off. Let's start with number one, which is looking at the two sides of the brain. One, first impressions and snap judgments. The ability to come to lightning quick conclusions, Gladwell notes, evolve for the sake of survival of our functioning occurs without us having to consciously think and we move back and forth between conscious and unconscious modes of thought. We work with two sides of the brain, one that has to be deliberate over things, analyze and categorize, and the one that sizes things up first and asks questions later. Mm, so survival. <laughs> is survival, is, it, is he building, is it the caveman? Is that the actual origin, this subconscious thinking, caveman responses? I think that's exactly where Gladwell's going. So obviously okay. this is this is um, somebody else calling out the key lessons, but you're, you're exactly right. I think that this is Gladwell saying, look, you look back at history, you look back at cavemen and, you know, the survival of the fittest right at the very beginning. And this is the sort of decision-making they would make. It's fight or flight, right? I'm not mm. going to think uh, jumping on this cheetah. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to do what I need to survive because I know that if I delay that decision-making, I might miss the opportunity. Mm. And I think in a world where we are connected all the time, we also move at such fast pace that arguably we now have more time to make those decisions. And again, looping back to what we've been saying, the more time that you have doesn't necessarily mean it's good because you're missing out on the element of speed, but also you're missing out on um, that confidence that comes with that snap judgment. This this idea mm. of two sides of the brain of deliberate thinking versus maybe overthinking is is a great um, the, pulling up the caveman is a great way to imagine that. I think. Yeah, yeah. When you so you got to know when you have a clay, cave caveman moment. So how do you know when when it's the right time for, for that snap judgment and versus the deliberate thinking that, that he was pointing out. Mm. I, I reckon it's down to, I reckon it's down to uh, how much you know about the topic. I think there's mm. an element, when you're a, a bit of a pro, so going back to your masterclass, Mike, mm. and the one that you're, you're making at the moment, and that'll soon be going live, you know the subject so well. You've now got into it and now you're just deliberating over those final few little details. But the truth is, you know it probably better than most at this point. And that's why you're able to, to give it. That's why you're able to do the master. Mm. Maybe this idea of um, making the snap judgment now is actually born out of you just knowing your stuff. 
So if you were mm. to now spend more time trying to deliberate and see both sides of the coin, it actually isn't adding any more benefit because you've already done all the hard work. Yeah, you're saying, so what you're saying is avoid second guessing yourself when you've already got a high level of familiarity. It's when something's brand new and you're sort of onboarding into a topic or an area, that's when you should be more deliberate. But if you're already deep in a thing, trust that your subconscious is actually giving you a signal and you can pursue that um, and make sure you follow up on that. I mean, that makes total sense to me. I can relate to that. And there's many times in my work where my gut feeling is like, hmm, that's a bit of a concern or wow, that's awesome. Like you just feel it. You just know it. And you've just been, you, you, you make that snap judgment in moments, don't you? Yeah, you do. And again, that's a perfect example, the gut feeling. Again, it's something that we all kind of throw around a lot, but I think it's born out of what Gladwell's saying in, in Blink, which is that deliberate versus overthinking. You know, your gut feeling, we all rely on, don't we? Because, and that's mm-hmm. a constant reaction. That's, that's your body, that's your caveman uh, instinct maybe, kicking in saying, oh, well, I think instinctually, I'm going to say that this is the answer. So if you want to overthink it, sure. But ultimately, you're probably going to end up coming back to the response that you had initially. Yep. Yep. I like your model. I like it. I really like it. So if you're new to it, deliberate. If you're deep in it, snap, rock and roll. Mm. Yeah. I really like it. All right. Well, we've got another build on thin slicing, which we heard about earlier. And I got a special for you here, Mark. We're going to go two clips back to back. So let's tune in to Malcolm Gladwell talking all things thin slicing. Two, thin slicing. Gladwell introduces the reader to the concept of thin slicing, which is the ability of our unconscious to find patterns in situations and behavior based on very narrow slices of experience. Even the most complex situations, he says, can be read quickly if we can identify the underlying pattern. Pattern recognition. Let's follow it up with its uh, partner clip. Again, thin slicing. Three, looking like a reader. The positive aspect of thin slicing is the ability to make a quick and correct judgments, but it also carries the negative aspect of ones that are hasty and wrong. Mm, you're right. Pattern recognition unconscious reading, making those quick and correct and snappy judgments. I'm reminded of the caveman again, you know, Mm. got this perhaps narrow experience and your body and your mind may have interacted with an element or an experience like the one you're facing right now. Uh, Let's choose something um, that I'm familiar with. Maybe I've received an email or a a bit of feedback that maybe I'm not so comfortable with because I don't really know the answer. And instead, uh, sometimes there'll be that gut instinct which kicks in saying, okay, well, you've run into this type of scenario before based on those narrow experiences. This is a pattern that my unconscious brain pushes me towards. And that Mm. thin slicing, that's a good lesson to remember, I think. And and for me, at least, it reinforces the, um, the benefit of behaving in that way because once again, we're reminded of doing things quickly doing it in mm. a uh, act, act, active and proactive way is no less beneficial than sitting there thinking about it for 20 minutes or longer. Yeah. So, so how do you um, move across your different pieces of work so that you can slice thinly across uh, the top to get the information that you need to quickly form these these judgments. How do you do that? Well, I think I might borrow from the Eisenhower matrix, actually. Uh, I think it comes from having the right people around you and being able to distinguish what is urgent and what's important and where it sits on that matrix. So, for example, if there is a task or an issue that I can delegate to somebody else, or I can delegate to a later point in time, then I'm able to, perhaps I'll read an email. I'll read an email first thing, and I'll think, okay, well, I've understood it, but I'm going to mark it as unread, and I'll come back to it. And 
and similar to my early example of sleeping on a decision, that that's my way of sort of lodging it in my brain, but then coming back to it later. So there's a, an element of exposing myself from a narrow experience or a thin slice experience right now, and then coming back when I am ready. My unconscious mm. can work on it in the background. It can maybe even decide or do something in my brain. But in order to actually come back and finish that item, maybe I'll go and do something else. Maybe I'll go and finish another gotcha. item. Let me, let me try and pitch you my approach to thin slicing. So what I do is on any project with any person, I try and work with a system where I get like a weekly um, update on what's happening. It tends to be like a g- general status report of how things are going with either with that person or with a project. And then my thin slice is I try to pick a thing, just one very specific item uh, that needs to happen uh, within a project or an activity that a person needs to do. And I drill down into that um, and use that as a very thin slice. So let's say there's a project that has um, 10 big deliverables and each deliverable has 20 parts. I will ask a specific question about one of those 10 deliverables. And then I'll go deeper and say, what about part 13? Where are you with that? Show me what you've got on that. And what I try to do to make a a snap judgment on are we on track or not is by just grabbing one specific, very measurable thing. If I see the right attention to detail and the logic seems right, I can therefore deduce if I have chosen to look at the thing rather than the person presenting to me uh, chose that I've created almost a quick uh, uh, a quick search, gone deep, and then I see, oh, part 13 was actually done really well. Fantastic. That's such a good leading indicator that I can make the snap judgment, yep, this feels pretty good. Um, and that's how I work across having so many different projects with varying levels of complexity. This is how I do it. So making sure that I have a general sense of what's happening and then doing a very quick laser-like deep dive. And if, if for example, I get uh, from that deep dive, hmm, this doesn't feel complete it, or it, the detail's not there or maybe just the logic doesn't make sense in it, then that is then triggers my intuition and says, okay, we need a deeper working session to really dive into that. And that's for me, like working across so many things, that's my, I was going to say thin slicing is more like a survival technique. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. That's your caveman approach. I like it. Yeah, totally. It's, it, and, you know, to build on that, um, as somebody who might give you that item or deliverable that then you do a, a kind of thin slice or a, a, a deep dive into, um, yeah, I, I totally see the value and the benefit of doing that because you are kind of testing the water. You're digging into mm-hmm. what that deliverable or product or maybe research has has contained, what mm-hmm. it contained. And yeah, there's no need to spend hours and hours going through it all with a fine tooth comb because somebody else already has. You, yep. In the element of, you know, delegation and in the element of collaboration it's it's all about making somebody else uh giving somebody else the relevant information in order to make a decision and similar to how gladwell's talking about in blink us having the ability to think in the right way and provide that level of subconscious decision making to work mm. that somebody else has given us so this concept of you know, maybe I'm uh, always coming back to it, but this concept of communication, collaboration, mm. feels like it's coming up again in Blink, I think. It, it does. And, and to build on, on what we've been thinking, I want to go back to the Coke and Pepsi challenge and apply thin slicing to it. Let's say someone came to the two of us and said, I have just done a study with 100 people 
and they all prefer Pepsi over Coke. And I've interviewed each of these people. It's really compelling. 80% of people prefer Pepsi over Coke. I would say, oh, okay, uh, why did you do the study? Who commissioned it? Okay, all right. Then my, so that's my broad context. Then my deep dive to before I respond to the data is I would say, okay, I want you to go into your notes. And according to this, there are 80 or so people that were um, preferring Pepsi. I want you to open those up and show them to me. And then I'm going to pick, let's say, person 67, and I want you to show me the transcript of what they said in order for you to deduce that they preferred Pepsi. I want you to show me the transcript. Mm -hmm. I didn't review all the 100. I just chose one. But it was me that was choosing because when I cut in there and I choose for that data, if they're like, oh, actually now I'm looking at it, we don't seem to have person 67. And then I'd be like, okay, that now my faith in your analysis is totally broken. But if they say, yeah, no problem, boop, 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 I'm in my app, here's the highlight. Actually, I could play the audio if you'd like it. Then I'd be like, oh, damn, okay, you got this, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, do the due diligence. Uh, mm. And if your you know, colleague or, or whoever it is, struggles to prove that element and the one that you've chosen at random, Mike, and it doesn't work, yeah, you can imagine that maybe there's a few more chinks in the armor, a few more weak links. I like that. Now, talking about chinks in the armor, this whole concept has a bit of a chink, doesn't it, Mark? (laughs) It does. And it's fun because the next uh, rapid fire um, lesson that we're going to hear from now is actually you know, to be honest, sometimes first impressions, they can lead to rush judgments. Four, tragic first impressions. The wrong first impression can have more tragic consequences. Gladwell provides a lengthy analysis of the shooting of an innocent man, Amadou Diallo, in the Bronx area of New York City. The uh, the clip that we've just heard actually is a really fascinating one, Mike, isn't it? Because it reminds me of the snap judgment and decision-making that took place that inspired Gladwell himself. You know, he was actually Mm. a target of some, um, uh, in a particular incident uh, with police um, in, I think it was Manhattan, where he he actually fit the profile of of a criminal and only down to his hair. And for those listeners who, you know, are aware of... of he got, he, he's got some crazy hair. He's got some <laughs> epic hair. And, and it's funny because the, the police who were involved in this particular incident, they saw him, saw Gladwell, and said, oh, he's got the hair of this, of this criminal. But it, it doesn't matter that he doesn't look anything else like the criminal that we've, we've written up. He's got the hair, though. And that snap decision-making, that first impression, mm. that can lead to the wrong takeaways. That can lead to the wrong reactions and responses in a lot of cases. So there is a danger. What's so, what's so hilarious about it, Mark, is that also Malcolm Gladwell, it just comes across as the nicest guy, articulate, smart. Um, I mean, he would be, imagine having an epic lunch in New York with him and just talking about stuff. Um, he's just the most lovely guy. So to think of him being a a suspect on the streets of New York is sort of a hilarious idea to begin with. But, um, if you, if you're looking for some epic hair, check out Malcolm Gladwell. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I'm I'm sort of glad, uh, because it inspired him. It inspired him to think, uh, subconscious decision-making snap judgments and so on, and bring it to us and show us, you know, using, Coke and Pepsi challenge is just one mm. experimenting example that you've mm. got to question the data. You've got to question the stimulus. You've got to question mm. the hair. <laughs> totally. And talking about big things, we've got a big clip to wrap up the show. Let's, let's have them listen to the last part of this summary of Malcolm Gladwell's book. And let's really focus on this idea of having too much information. Five, too much information. We feel we need a lot of information to be confident in our judgments, but often that extra information, while giving us the illusion of certainty, makes us more prone to mistakes. Described in the book, Blink are fascinating cases, anecdotes, and intellectual detours. 
From Tom Hanks's star appeal, to speed dating, to military strategy, to fake Greek statues, to the how orchestras handle auditioning that illustrate Gladwell's thesis of the power of first impressions from zero to one. Bringing it all back to us. This, mm. uh, you know, again, it's, it's a potentially um, confrontational idea, this, you know, for, for those of us like myself who are used to uh, digging into lots and lots of work yeah. and wanting to see all of the elements. And, you know, conversely to your example, Mike, maybe actually listening to all of those transcripts and user interviews, <laughs> and so on, that's too much information. And what ends up happening, as, as Gladwell points out in Blink, is you're going to be prone to mistakes if you if you really get into that because you're blocking your subconscious ability yeah. to to avoid um, contamination of data. Right? Well, th- this is a big call to action to trust the process, to trust your subconscious, and if you present yourself with the right information, you can avoid what he what he mentioned in this last clip: the illusion of certainty. Right, mm. we've got a big report. There's lots of data. Like, get over that, and make sure you're focused on the right things, things that that matter. And I think that is just a really powerful way to sort of bring together all of the thinking that Malcolm Gladwell put into Blink. Um, and I, I just feel uh, more informed, more aware, more present in actually how I'm thinking, whether it's conscious or subconsciously, and how I might arrive at a recommendation or a course of action, I think this really puts us in good stead, don't you, Matt? It really does. The, the one that I'm going to really remember is, apart from you know the fantastic relook at the Coke and Pepsi challenge, um, is this idea of, of making those speedy decisions, making mm. decisions by removing that contamination and the the over over information over uh, exposure to information mm. you know, that that's that's a great big lesson coming from Gladwell right here and just filtering out stuff that doesn't matter right exactly filtering it out and this fantastic example that you brought up about the voice the screens mm. the use of screeners placing mm. them around you and in order mm. to allow you to really dig into that bit of work um, and not get too, uh, I suppose, distracted from making that right decision. I think that's a really mm. valuable coming through Blink. Mm. Well, listen, we know how you think is such a powerful thing. And as a first principle, you have total control of your thoughts. So what a gift today. Uh in just a blink of an eye, we have spent an hour together learning from Malcolm Gladwell in our second installment of uh, the Malcolm Gladwell series. What, where do we go next on this epic adventure with uh, Mr. Gladwell himself, Mark? What's, uh, what's next on the menu? We've got, we've got a couple more books, actually. We're, we're, we're not nice. going to be able to cover all of Gladwell, but we're digging into two more of his unbelievable bestsellers. In episode 92, so the next episode following Blink will be Outliers. And then we're going to end the Gladwell series with David and Goliath. Mm, mm. I love a challenge and I love that sort of narrative. But what I love equally as much uh, is learning from people like Ma- Malcolm Gladwell. It's pretty cool, right? Uh, I, I get a lot of value from digging into these innovators every week. I love hearing from our listeners and seeing us cropping up in lots of different locations. So uh, um, thank you listeners for, for listening to us learning out loud. I hope you get as much out of it as I do. Well, on that note, Mark, uh, I want to thank you uh, for helping me learn out loud together with just a few Uh, friends, just 10,000 friends uh, who listen to the show every single month. It is such a, it's such a great challenge. I love uh, how some of the ideas are inspiring, some are challenging. um, And I think that's what we would demand of a show that helps us find the very best version of ourselves. So on that note, uh, I hope all of you, our listeners, 
are feeling more empowered about how they think both consciously and subconsciously and that you'll come back to join us on the next installment of the Malcolm Gladwell series. So go out there, think the biggest and the best ideas and focus on the things that really matter. And I'm sure you'll realize both your dreams and your hopes. So from us, that's the end of the Moonshots podcast. That's a wrap.